It is a delight to be here with you this evening and to contribute to this uh, Sunday night series on doctrinal clarity. That is, as many of you know, the, the theme of the upcoming Shepherds Conference, and uh, I think it was a great idea to share with our own church a bit of what is coming at Shepherds. Uh, for tonight, I was asked to preach a message on gaining clarity concerning our salvation, doctrinal clarity on salvation. But as you know, the doctrine of salvation is an exceedingly broad topic. Uh, Our salvation in Christ is so multifaceted. Uh, There are so many angles from which to approach the doctrine of salvation. And while I thought about picking just one aspect of soteriology, I, I eventually decided to address the broad sweep of salvation from the Father's plan in eternity past to the Son's accomplishment on the cross to the Spirit's application in our new birth all the way to our final consummation of glorification into eternity future. And the way to do that is to consider the doctrine of union with Christ. And that is because union with Christ is not merely another step in the order of salvation. It's not just the next blessing we receive after we're regenerated or or the step before believing and being justified. Union with Christ encompasses all aspects of our salvation, from the Father's election to the Son's atonement to the Spirit's regeneration and beyond, as we will see. But the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ is one of the most precious truths in all of Scripture. The concept of being united to Christ speaks of the most vital spiritual intimacy that one can imagine between the Lord and His people. Scripture teaches that Christ is our Lord, that He is our Master, our Savior, our Teacher, our Friend, The list of descriptors for Christ's relationship to believers is seemingly endless. But Scripture also teaches that believers are not merely associated with Christ as slaves to a master or students to a teacher or even as the objects of His saving grace and love. Christians do not merely worship Jesus We don't merely obey Him or pray to Him, though those privileges surely would be enough. But instead, Christians are so intimately identified with Christ and He with us that Scripture says that we are united, that He is in us, that we are in Him, that all that we are belongs to Him and that all that He is belongs to us. The Lord and His people share a common spiritual life, such that the Apostle Paul could say in Colossians 3.3 that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he could say in Colossians 3.4, the next verse, that Christ Himself is our life. And then in Galatians 2.20, that he says, it's no longer even he who lives, but Christ lives in him. Christ and his people are so united to one another that Paul can't tell where he ends and Christ begins. The life I live in the flesh, yet nevertheless not I, but Christ lives in me. That kind of intimate spiritual union is unique to Christianity. 
In no other religion is the object of worship said to be the life of the worshiper. Muslims don't speak of being in Allah or in Muhammad. Buddhists never say that they are in Buddha. They may follow the teachings of their respective leaders, but Christians alone are said to be in Christ, united to Him as their representative, as our substitute, as our mediator. Now, the biblical concept of union with Christ is as pervasive as it is precious. It absolutely permeates the New Testament. And it often goes undetected by believers because it's most commonly signaled by this tiny preposition, in. So we are often said to be in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Which is to say, salvation is the work of God. It's by God's doing. But salvation there is synonymous with being in Christ. By His, by his doing, you're saved. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Again, salvation synonymous with being united to Jesus. And believers aren't only said to be in Christ, but Scripture says that Christ is in us. Romans 8.10, Paul says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Well, being dead to sin and alive to righteousness is what it means to be a Christian. And Paul describes the person in that state as the one in whom Christ dwells. He says in Ephesians 3.17 that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And then in Colossians 1, verses 26 and 27, Paul describes union with Christ when he speaks of the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Union with Christ, represented by the reality of Christ dwelling in the believer, is described as the hope of glory, the mystery hidden in long ages past now revealed. And then there are passages, not only that say that we're in Christ and that Christ is in us, then there are passages that say, that, say both at the same time. And I won't belabor this, but just consider 1 John four thirteen. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. We in Him and Him in us, just underscoring and emphasizing the intimacy of our mutual indwelling Christ and the believer. The believer in Jesus enjoys the most personal, familiar sort of spiritual union to him. And the importance of that union cannot be overstated. John Murray, the longtime professor of theology at Westminster Seminary, wrote that there is no truth more suited to impart confidence and strength, comfort and joy in the Lord than this one of union with Christ. But that confidence and strength, that comfort and joy cannot be ours if we are unclear about this truth. And therefore, we must have clarity concerning our union with Christ. And as we dive into this doctrine tonight, 
And I'm going to outline our thoughts along three broad categories. First, we need to consider what I'm calling the pervasiveness of the believer's union with Christ. Scripture connects all aspects of our salvation to our union to our Savior, including those aspects that take place before we come to faith. And that raises some questions that need to be addressed. Second, having placed the doctrine of the union with Christ in this theological framework, we'll consider what Scripture has to say about the nature of union with Christ. What does it actually mean to be united to Jesus? And finally, we'll consider some implications of our union with Christ, how this doctrine actually impacts our understanding of ourselves and the gift of our salvation. So pervasiveness, nature, and implications. First, let's consider the pervasiveness of the believer's union with Christ. And what I mean by that, as I've said, is that union with Christ is not just another phase in the application of redemption, like regeneration, faith, justification. Those are steps in the ordo salutis. It's not like we're first regenerated and then we believe and then we're united to Christ and then we're justified and so on. Instead, union with Christ pervades all aspects of our salvation. It is the matrix out of which all other soteriological doctrines flow. Union with Christ is the atmosphere in which we breathe the air of saving blessings. And I don't know if there's a text that better illustrates that than Ephesians chapter 1. Turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. This is a familiar text. It is a glorious passage of Scripture. It's a marvelous hymn of praise to the triune God for our salvation. It's actually just a long 202-word sentence in the original Greek. Just an exuberant eruption of worship for the manifold blessings that are poured out upon believers in Christ. And it brings into focus the entirety of our salvation from eternity past to eternity future, spanning the work of all three persons of the Trinity. In verses 3 through 6, the Apostle Paul praises God the Father for His eternal unconditional election of his people. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5. In love he predestined us to adoption. So this is the plan of redemption. Before time began, God the Father unconditionally chose to rescue certain sinners from damnation and destruction through the work of His Son, whom He would send to be our Redeemer. And then in verses 7 to 12, Paul praises God the Son for His sin-bearing atonement on behalf of those whom the Father has chosen. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is the accomplishment of, of redemption, how God the Son took on flesh to live and to die in the place of His people, paying the penalty of our sins and satisfying God's justice by bearing the wrath of God in our place. And then in verses 13 and 14, Paul praises God the Spirit 
for his work in sealing the blessings planned by the Father and purchased by Christ to each individual believer. Verse 13, in him, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is the application of redemption. When we are put into actual possession of all the saving blessings that the Father determined to be ours and that Christ purchased on on our behalf in His atoning death. And then the Spirit doesn't finish applying our redemption until He puts us into possession of every one of those saving blessings purchased by Christ, including our glorification. And so Paul speaks in verse 14 of our future inheritance and our ultimate redemption, which we may call the consummation of redemption. So redemption planned in eternity past. Redemption accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago and redemption applied at the time of our conversion and throughout our Christian lives until we are raised from the dead, imperishable, always to be with the Lord. How great a salvation with which we have been saved. But I want you to notice something about this hymn of praise to our triune Savior. I want you to see how this glorious prayer of blessing is absolutely littered with the phrase, in Him or in Christ. Verse 3, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, the Father chose us in Him. Verse 6, He freely bestowed grace on us in the Beloved, the Beloved Son in whom He is well pleased. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Verse 9, the Father's good pleasure was purposed in Him. Verse 10, all things are being summed up in Christ. Verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. See, it is in Christ. That is to say, in union to Christ, that we are made partakers of every spiritual blessing that there is. There is no spiritual blessing to be enjoyed at all in the universe apart from union to Jesus Christ alone. It includes the Father's choice of us in eternity past. It includes the the Son's accomplishment of our redemption from His life of obedience to His death on the cross, from His burial and resurrection on the third day. And it includes every blessing that we receive in salvation from our regeneration all the way to our glorification. It's for that reason that the great theologian John Murray called the believer's union with Christ the central truth of the whole doctrine of of salvation. It is, in a real sense, the unifying principle of all soteriology, spanning from election in eternity past to glorification in eternity future. See, if we understand what Ephesians 1 is teaching us, we can't think of ourselves past, present, or future apart from our union with Christ. Now, let's consider each of those blessings or categories of blessings of salvation and see how Scripture relates all of them to our being united with Christ. Plan, accomplishment, and application. First, 
The plan of redemption, or the Father's election, is rooted in Christ. We've already seen Ephesians 1.4, just as He chose us, just as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The text doesn't say He chose us to be in Him eventually. No, the Father's choice to save His people is made in Christ. We also see it in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Turn there with me. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. Paul speaks of, of God. He says, Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Grace was granted to us from all eternity, before time began, before any of us sitting here had ever existed. And so the Father's choice to save His people from sin, to graciously set His love upon us and graciously determine to rescue us from death and damnation, that grace is said to be granted to us in Christ Jesus, that is, in union with Christ. That is a staggering thought. That from all eternity, there was never a time when God contemplated His chosen ones apart from their vital union to Jesus Christ. The Father's choice to save us is a choice to save us by the work that Christ would accomplish on our behalf. It's a choice to appoint Christ to be our mediator and redeemer. Jesus Himself speaks of this reality in the Gospel of John as the Father giving His elect to the Son, whom the Son calls His sheep. John 10, 27, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And then verse 29, My Father who has given them to Me, who who has given those sheep to Me, is greater than all. In John 17, He prays to the Father, They were yours, and you gave them to me. So the Father's choice of us in Christ before the foundation of the world, His granting us grace in Christ Jesus from all eternity, is His giving us to Christ as His sheep, for whom Christ as the Good Shepherd will eventually lay down His life, and to whom He will grant eternal life. This means that election, the choice of, of the Father to save His people is a choice that constitutes a union between Christ and us, His people. And precisely because of that, secondly, Scripture also teaches that God reckoned the elect to be united with Christ throughout every act of the Son's accomplishment of redemption. Plan now accomplishment. And we saw it in Ephesians 1.7. In Him, that is, in union with Christ, we have redemption through His blood. Now, this is not merely saying that when we believe in Christ, we are counted to be redeemed by Him. That's true, of course. But that's not what Paul's emphasizing in this verse. To speak of redemption through Christ's blood 
is to speak of Christ's once-for-all accomplishment of redemption on the cross. Redemption was accomplished in the shedding of Christ's blood 2,000 years ago on Calvary. So you see, because the Father has chosen us in Christ in eternity past, because He's given us to Christ and appointed Him to be our mediator, that union that was established between the elect and Christ in eternity past remains established during the entire life of our Savior as He comes to accomplish our salvation. And so Scripture teaches that in a mysterious way, even before the great majority of His people came into being, the elect were united to Christ at every point of His saving mission on earth. And so what did we just sing? All the blessings He deserves are ours because we were united to Him as He accomplished and earned and merited those blessings. So Matthew 3.15, we're told that Jesus was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. You say, why would Jesus ever need to undergo a baptism of repentance to fulfill righteousness? Jesus had no sins to repent of. But we did. He was doing it because he was amassing a record of of righteousness, of human obedience that would be credited to all those who were united to him. Galatians 3.27 says, For all of you who were immersed into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And what is it to be clothed with Christ? It is to wear that spotless robe of righteousness that Isaiah 61.10 calls the garments of salvation. To be clothed with Christ is to be credited with the obedience of Christ, which He accomplished while on earth. And so Romans 5.19 says that through the obedience of the one man, the many will be constituted righteous. In 1 Corinthians 1.30 By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The Father united us to Christ, who became righteousness to us. So the righteousness that Jesus fulfilled in His life, Matthew 3.15, is the righteousness with which we are clothed in union to Him. And this union with Christ was also the ground upon which our sin could be justly imputed to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, The Father made Christ to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The Father counted the elect to have lived Jesus' life of perfect righteousness because on the cross He counted Jesus to have lived our lives and punished Him in accordance with what we deserve. So all the blessings we deserve or He deserved become, become ours and all the punishment and bitterness and, and wrath that we deserved become His on the cross. And it's the union between Christ and His people that functions as the connective tissue, as it were, of imputation, the imputation of sin and righteousness. It's become fashionable in theological circles these days to pit union with Christ against the imputation of sin and righteousness. So how do we get righteous? Oh, it's it's just by some vague union 
with Christ, not by the judicial reckoning of our being righteous in Christ, having been credited with his actual deeds of obedience. That's a false dichotomy. Union with Christ is the connective tissue, the matrix in which imputation and justification happen. We are counted righteous in Christ. Both imputation and union. And therefore, Scripture says not only that He's borne our sin, but that we have died with Him. Romans 6, 8. Now, since we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Colossians 2, 20. Since you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Colossians 3, 3 again. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Romans 6, 6 says our old self was crucified with Him. So we were there on the cross before many of the elect had ever even existed, certainly before you and I had existed, and we were crucified with Christ, counted to have died with Him by virtue of our union to Him. In a mysterious way that is above our ability to comprehend fully, we were with Christ on Calvary's cross and we died with Him and in Him. My name is graven on His hands. My name is written on His heart. I know my sheep. I know my own. Jesus went to the cross with your name on His heart, and by the Father's reckoning, you united to Him. And not only did we die with Him, but we were also buried with Him, Romans 6, 4, Colossians 2, 12. Not only have we died and been buried with Him, we've been raised from the dead with Him. Colossians 3, 1 says, since you have been raised up with Christ. Ephesians 2, 6 said, says, God raised us up with Him. And more than raised us up, He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. And then follow those union words again in Christ Jesus. So you're here and you're in the heavenly places because you're united to Christ. And so you see, this union with Christ is such that his life is our life. His punishment is our punishment. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His righteousness is our righteousness. His ascension and glorification are our ascension and glorification. Everything that Christ did while He was on earth with respect to the accomplishment of of, of salvation, His people are said to have done in Him. So do you see, God is not just sweeping our sins under the rug. He's not just uh, creating a fictitious righteousness which, which, where he says, okay, I'm just going to decide. I know you're not righteous. I'm just going to uh, call you righteous anyway, even though, wink, wink, we know that you're filthy still. It's true that the righteousness by which we are justified is not ours. We are at the same time righteous and sinners, but the righteousness that he credits us with was earned It was lived out. Just like the sin that Adam committed was credited to our account was an actual lived out sin, so the righteousness that we are credited with is an actual lived out record of righteousness, of of obedience. You didn't obey. 
Christ obeyed on your behalf and through union with him, God treats you as if it was you doing the obeying. That's glorious. Praise God for the gospel. Every last one of us in here who knows ourselves this this evening has to leap for joy at that concept. The body was always reckoned to be united to the head. And yet, even though we have been chosen before the foundation of the world, and even though our sins were paid for in the first century, which is to say, even though that our salvation was made certain, doubly certain, by the election of the Father and the redemption of the Son, we are not put into actual possession of salvation until we come to saving faith until the redemption that has been designed for us in eternity and purchased for us on Calvary is applied to us in time. And so in the third place, just as the plan of redemption and the accomplishment of redemption occur in union with Christ, so too does the application of redemption. And let's just run through all of these blessings that we have in union with Christ. That begins with regeneration. God's people are born again in union with Christ. So just write these references down. Ephesians 2.5. Paul describes the believer's regeneration by saying that the Father made us alive together with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if, if anyone is in Christ, that is, if anyone is united to Christ, he's a new creation. That's nothing less than saying that one is made a new creation. He's born again in union with Christ. And then regeneration issues immediately in repentant faith. Our spiritual eyes are opened. Uh, we embrace Christ, Christ with the arms of saving faith like you heard testimony of in the baptistry, that it just clicked and I was able to repent. And, and since it's by faith, by repentant faith, that we lay hold of Christ in our actual possession, then it's by faith that we lay hold of every spiritual blessing that was planned for us in Christ. United to Christ by faith, then, we lay hold of Christ's righteousness in justification. So Philippians 3, nine. Paul says he wants to be found in him, again, in union to Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that righteousness which is through faith in Christ. And so Galatians 2.17 says it plainly, we are justified in Christ. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And having been declared righteous, Believers are then adopted into the family of God by virtue of their union with Christ. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We are, as a recent book title puts it, sons in the Son. Because Christ is the preeminent natural Son of God, through our union with him, we become adopted sons and daughters of God. And then in addition to adoption, we're set apart and sanctified for holiness and service to God by virtue of our union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 1-2 calls the Corinthian believers, who had quite a bit of sanctification left to go, calls them those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. They'd been definitively, positionally set apart for the Holy Spirit to go to work on them and to make them 
into the, to conform them into the image of Christ. Which means progressive sanctification is also a blessing that comes to us in union with Christ. Our actual moral transformation flows from union with the Holy One. The growth of the branches depends on our being sapped to our vine. John 15. So we read it this morning, Romans 7 Verse 4, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So bearing fruit for God in sanctification only happens when we are joined to the resurrected one, the Lord Jesus. And so if you're trying to make progress in sanctification, if you're trying to obey the Lord faithfully by following the commands that you see in Scripture, but you, don't, you have no vital union to Christ by faith, you're going to only spin your wheels. You're only going to be frustrated over and over again because growth and holiness only comes through union to Jesus. Union with Christ is also the source of perseverance in the Christian life. Romans 8 38 and 39 famously says that nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We'll never be separated from God's love. We'll never lose our salvation because we have been united to Christ. And just as much as Christ cannot be separated from the Father, neither can His people be separated from the Father or the Son or the Spirit. Not even death severs this union because Scripture calls Christians who die the dead in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 And then even unto the last day, it is on the basis of union with Christ that believers will be raised from the dead in glorification. He is, 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits of our resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam... All die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Romans 6, 5, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be united with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. It is our union to Christ, this risen One, which grounds our own resurrection. So believer, when were you saved? Say, well, I was saved when I was... 15 and I made a profession of faith? Well, yes, because that's when the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and put you into actual possession of all the blessings that have been won for you and, and designed for you. But that wasn't the beginning by far. When were you saved? I was saved 2,000 years ago on Calvary when Christ went to the cross and, and bore all my sin and my shame and paid for my sins and won heaven for me. Yes, that's true, but he's there by the, the eternal plan and design of His Father who chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. When were you saved? <laughs> From eternity. How glorious is the pervasiveness of the believer's union with Christ. From eternity to eternity. From Election to glorification from before the heavens and the earth were formed to the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. You and I, fellow Christian, sinful, hell-deserving, rebellious us, 
by the unfathomable grace of God, we're always regarded as one with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How worthy the triune God is of our worship for that work of salvation. How worthy an object of meditation is this truth of our union with Christ that spans all of history and beyond. Having seen the pervasiveness of the believer's union with Christ, we come now, secondly, to the nature of this union itself. What does it mean exactly that believers are united to Christ? And Scripture answers that question in part by illustrating the intimacy of this union with a number of metaphors. And it's by understanding these metaphors that we can reach sound biblical conclusions concerning the nature of our union with Christ. So the first metaphor I'll draw your attention to is how Scripture uses the picture of a building and its foundation to illustrate the believer's union with Christ. If you turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So here, Paul speaks of the church as God's household, as a spiritual building laid on the foundation of the divine revelation communicated by the apostles and prophets of the early church. And he says the cornerstone of that foundation is Christ himself, and it is in him that the church is growing together into a holy temple. And so you hear that union language, in whom the building is being fitted together, a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together. And then the the Greek term translated fitted together in verse 21 speaks of the union of every component of the building. If you think about a literal building, right, every stone is cut precisely so that it fits snugly and strongly and even beautifully with every other part of the building and so that it rests perfectly on that foundation. On the same way, it is only by being built on and permanently united to Christ, our cornerstone that we find our spiritual existence, support, and security to be well-founded. And so the growth, the edification, the unity, and the stability of the church all depend upon being united to Christ, our cornerstone and foundation. A second illustration. The believer's union is, is pictured as the union between the vine and the branches. And I mentioned this before in John 15. A familiar text for us. John 15, 4 and 5. Jesus taught, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Just as the branches depend on the vine, for life, for strength, for sustenance, so also does the believer depend on union with Christ 
for all spiritual nourishment and growth. Apart from Christ the vine, we the branches can bear no fruit. We are entirely useless, destitute of any spiritual vitality unless we remain connected to our vine. And remaining connected to our vine, we draw all of our spiritual life and vitality directly from Him. John 1 says, For from of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There's a communication of fullness and life and vitality between Christ and His people. Third metaphor is marriage. Ephesians 5. The church is often pictured as the bride of Christ. Christ, Ephesians 5, to 33, famously names Christ as, as the husband and head of the church. And then Paul bases all of his instructions for the husband-wife relationship in this passage in, in Ephesians 5 on the relationship between Christ and his bride. And there are a number of things that we can glean from the metaphor of marriage for understanding the believer's union with Christ. It speaks of the intimacy of this union. In the one flesh union of husband and wife is the most private, personal, and intimate relationship among mankind. And yet, Ephesians 5.32 says the whole purpose of marriage, the entire reason God designed marriage, was to be a picture of this mysterious union between Christ and His church. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and His church. The marriage metaphor also speaks to the organic nature of the believer's union with Christ. In marriage, there's, there's a, a new life created. Ephesians 5.31, and the two shall become one flesh. This one flesh union of husband and wife portrays the mutuality and vitality of the church's union with her husband. Marriage also pictures the legality of the believer's union with Christ. Marriage legally joins the husband to the wife so that all that is hers is his and all that is his is hers. And so also does the believer's union with Christ enable Christ to act as the legal representative in our stead. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Another gleaning from marriage is that it illustrates the unbreakable bond that exists between Christ and the church. Again, Ephesians 5.31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And to be joined to translates the Greek term proskolao, which literally means to be glued or cemented together. God's design for marriage is to be permanent. Matthew 19, 6, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so marriage illustrates the permanence of the union between Christ and his church. Nothing more foolish than to suggest that Christ could be united to someone and then to divorce his bride. Building and foundation, vine and branches, just now marriage, a fourth metaphor, perhaps the greatest one that Scripture employs to illustrate the believer's union with Christ is the union of head and body. Head and body. You see this everywhere. Romans 12, 5, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And Christ is our head. If the church is the body, Christ is the head. Ephesians 1, 
22 to 23. And the Father put all things into subjection under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we were just in Ephesians 5. Christ also is the head of the church who nourishes and cherishes the church because we are members of his body. Believers' bodies are, are so much, are, we, are members of Christ's own body, so much so that in Acts 9, when Jesus comes and confronts Saul for persecuting Christians, he asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, was, Jesus was resurrected and ascended. The church, Saul was persecuting the church. But such is the union between the head and the body that what happens to the one happens to the other. So much is that the case that 1 Corinthians 6 says, for a believer to unite his own body to a prostitute is to unite Christ to a prostitute. And again, there's this clear principle. What happens to the head happens to the body. What happens to the body happens to the head. And that lays the groundwork for understanding the legal and representational nature of the believer's union with Christ where Christ obeys and dies and rises and ascends in our place so that we are reckoned to have done all those things. In fact, though in fact, we had done none of them. Our head did them all, but they count for us as if we did them. And we saw all of that before. His obedience, our obedience. We've been raised with Him, died with Him, buried with Him, raised and seated with Him. And so because our union with Christ is a legal union, because Christ is the representative head of his people, there's no element of his earthly life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension which we do not partake of on account of being in him. Do that next time you read through one of the Gospels. Think, I'm there. My name is graven on his hands even there. The way that he deals gently with the, 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 the weak, the way that he has compassion on Bartimaeus, the way that he patiently deals with his, his disciples who are so thick-headed, the way that he endures suffering and spit and mocking and, and crown of thorns and beatings and eventually the wrath of the Father. I'm there with him and in him. And so if we had to summarize what we learned about the nature of the believer's union with Christ from these metaphors. I can think of at least five characteristics, just quickly. It's an organic union, which means it's, 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 it's one body. We're, he's the head, we're the members. What's true of him is true of us. It's a legal union. It fits Christ to be our substitute and representative and fits us to be the beneficiary of his substitutionary work. It's a vital union through which all spiritual life and vitality flows from the vine to the branches. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He is our life. Four, we might call it a spiritual union because it has its source and is mediated by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says we are immersed into union with Christ by the Spirit. And so it's spiritual. And, it, and finally, it's, it's a permanent union that can never be severed. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in, that is, which is ours in union with Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we've seen the pervasiveness of union with Christ, how it spans from eternity to eternity. 
the nature of our union with Christ. We've seen in these four metaphors. I'd like to conclude our time tonight by focusing on four implications of the doctrine of union with Christ has for our theology and for our Christian life. In the first place, since God the Son is one with God the Father and one with God the Spirit, believers, by virtue of our participation in Christ, are also made one with the Father and the Spirit. And Scripture testifies to that. John 17, 21, Jesus prays that the unity of the church would reflect the unity that he shares with his Father. He says, I pray that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Think about that for the next week. And we might be in the Father and the Son. And so, in the opening verse of 1 Thessalonians, Paul calls the believers there the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. And so just like we are in Christ and Christ is in us, so also we are in the Father and the Father is in us. And the same is true of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, you, that is believers, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. We are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in us. 2 Timothy 1.14 speaks of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And so in an unspeakable mystery, we, who as Ephesians 2.12 says, were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, alienated and without God in the world, we are now through faith in Christ, swept up into the divine life of the triune God. I mean, you and me. Filthy. Sinners. Deserve nothing but hell. Deserve nothing but abandonment. Deserve nothing to be anywhere near the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit swept up into the divine life of the eternal God. What exalted worship ought to be the result of that meditation? What an obedient life that must be the result of that meditation. That every moment I am in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what I propose to do in my flesh, I propose to do to them. It also ought to compel us to take advantage of the privilege of communion with the triune God. That's the second implication. Union with Christ is the foundation for communion with Christ. We have not been united with Christ merely to receive all of his benefits. We have been united with Christ and made partakers of the blessings of salvation ultimately so that we might enjoy him. Think about it. When you get married, when, you, when your union to your spouse is solemnized in your wedding vows, that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning. And it's on the basis of that objective union that you pursue greater and deeper communion with one another day by day as you walk through life together. Well, the same ought to be true of your relationship with Christ. Understanding the, the glories, the truths of your union with Him ought to compel you to fellowship with Him through daily Scripture reading and prayer, through weekly participation in corporate worship, 
through the regular fellowship uh, with the saints and a life of obedience, as we said. And that leads to a third implication regarding the life of the church itself. That is to say, those who are one in Christ, those who are one with Christ, I should say, are also made one with everyone else who is one with Christ. The believer's union with Jesus is the fundamental ground of the unity of all believers with one another. We've grown accustomed to speaking of our personal relationship with Jesus. And of course, I understand what that means. It's real, it's living, it's, it's vital. But if we're being precise, Christians don't have a merely personal relationship with Jesus. We have a corporate relationship with Jesus. And that's because we who are united to him are united to everyone else who's united to him. Christians are the unified members of Christ's body. That's a reality. We're the living stones in the spiritual house built on the foundation of Christ. We must be united to one another. For anyone to suggest that somebody can be genuinely united to Jesus, can be members of Christ's body, apart from actually joining ourselves in membership to a particular local expression of that body, is to tear the head from the body. It's to sever Christ from himself. And so you can mark it. There is no union with Christ that does not issue in fellowship with his church. And not mere fellowship, but unity. John 17, 21, again, Jesus declares that the unity of the Trinity is the ground of the unity of the church. Since believers are united to Christ and since Christ is united to the Father and the Spirit, therefore we are to live in unity with one another. We wouldn't dare divide the persons of the Trinity, would we? We wouldn't be a a stone in that living building that gets out of joint and causes the rest to topple. We're to live in unity with one another. What a motivation the doctrine of union with Christ is to diligently pursue what Ephesians 4.3 calls the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And a fourth implication. We must grasp the significance of the fact that every spiritual benefit received in salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. The great theologian John Owen wrote, This union is the cause of all other graces that we are made partakers of. They are all communicated unto us by virtue of our union with Christ. Hence is our adoption, our justification, our sanctification, our fruitfulness, our perseverance, our resurrection, our glory. Friends, it is only as we share in Christ that we share in what is Christ's. It is only that we, as we share in Christ that we have a share in what is Christ's, which is to say that no spiritual blessing in all the world is found anywhere but in vital communion with Jesus Christ through faith alone in Him. If we are to have an interest in Christ's blessings, we must have an interest in His person. The gifts are wrapped up only in the giver. And that means, friend, if you're here tonight outside of Christ, if you're here destitute of a saving relationship to Jesus through faith alone in Him, your first order of business before you take a step out of the pew is to bow the knee to Christ in repentance and to put all your trust 
and all your hope for righteousness and forgiveness squarely on his shoulders. Say, how how do I know? Did the Father choose me in Christ? Did did the Son uh, die for me in union with him? Was I crucified with Christ? That actually isn't your business. That's a truth known only subsequent to your coming to faith in Christ by by uh, trusting in him through the word of the gospel. You're not called to peer into the eternal counsels of the divine mind. You are called to come to Christ because you need him and because he is perfectly suited to meet that need. And so don't delay all the blessings that we spoke about, the oodles of blessings that boil over from the scriptures through this reality of in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, are only in Christ. Come into him by faith alone tonight, entrusting your eternal soul to the one who has made an end of all all your sin. And he will receive you and you will be swept up into that divine life. And friends, who are my brothers and sisters in union with Christ. Go to the Scriptures. Find those little phrases in Him, in Christ, and let your heart sing for the great salvation that has been lavished upon you in the kindness of God. Let's pray. Father, our hearts do sing, even now, in the quietness of our heart, for the salvation that you have lavished upon us so richly. We are so undeserving to be associated with you, to be named in the same sentence as the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has taken us into himself, you into yourself, the spirit into himself. Would you make us aware of these great truths? Would you give this to your people as a a great inheritance which they can can meditate on and, and worship from each morning as they seek communion with you. May we live in the strength of our union with Christ, pursuing communion with Christ, and therefore the the severing of communion with all that is opposed to Christ. Make us a holy people. I do pray, Father, that you would draw those who are not yet in you by faith to faith in you this morning, this evening. That you would come and and rescue, Lord Jesus, good shepherd, one of those lost sheep who are yours, but have not yet come into the fold. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would breathe the breath of divine life in every heart that does not know you within the sound of my voice, unto your honor and glory, so that you may get what you're worthy of in the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We always have the prayer room open. Uh, To my right, your left, through the exit signs. I wonder if you would stand with me for a benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.